0: Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Hey, Sunridge. Good to see you. I'm back again. You know, uh, the church should be a refuge, but we can't be a bubble, right? And, you know, it was just last Sunday, Easter Sunday, where we were praying for Christians in Sri Lanka uh, from all the bombings that occurred over there, and several hundred Christians lost their lives. And I don't know if you've been following the news, but just yesterday in Poway, a synagogue uh, there, a uh, shooter came in and shot people. There's at least one dead, I believe. It's just, you know, these words that we sing, uh, that we stand on a firm foundation. But that foundation isn't hate or it's, it's not anger. It's the love of God. And, and I love the way those words said, it's like, show us who you are, God, and fill us with that, and then lead us to take the love that you've given us to the world. I think that those are the marching orders to the church today. So this morning, we're a refuge. We're going to spend some time in God's Word and growing, but we can never forget that there's a whole world out there that's gone bonkers, and we have the love of God in us, those of us who are Christians. And it's such a great opportunity. I pray uh, that Sunridge, that we are those people. That if Sunridge is your home, that that we are that church in this community. Um, To God be the glory when that happens. Um, When I was growing up, I wasn't that picky about my water. I don't know about you, but like, when I was a little kid, you got your water from two sources. If you're in the house, you got it out of the faucet. And if you're outside, you got it... The hose! That's like, you don't even see that anymore. It's like, a kid would probably get spanked. Well, no, they wouldn't get spanked. You'd probably, like, get a hug or something. I don't know, but, like... If you, we drank out of the hose when we were outside. Something you don't even see anymore, you know? And the thought back then, like, sorry, young people, old man... Uh, The thought that somebody can make a fortune bottling what is already free, just not even in my paradigm. Um, But we know it's true, right? So we're in this series that we're calling Grace Like Water. We're comparing God's grace to water. Uh, And we've said that, you know, God's grace is like water because of through Jesus Christ, the pure and amazing grace of God flows to us. And if we allow it, it can flow through us to others. We've looked at um, how the Bible says that people have kind of an innate thirst for the grace of God. whether Religious or not, there's like something that draws us toward the idea of grace in God. And yet, That thirst can drive us toward mirages, things that really are not going to satisfy, or as we talked about last uh, weekend on Easter Sunday, that there is a true source for the pure grace of God. It is the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And today I want to talk about additives and contaminants to water, because really we have two basic requirements of our water. Uh, We want it to be free of contaminants, and we want it to taste good so you know that water is easily contaminated and that's why we have so many regulations and checks and balances and we're very protective of our water source so too grace grace can be easily contaminated to the point that it's no longer fit for consumption and we want our water to taste good too which is kind of like what has proliferated bottled water and, and water that we pay for rather than taking it for free and they add little chemicals like sodium bicarbonate and other things to just give it a little better flavor. And, you know, grace can be like that too. We, we can add to grace to make it a little more palatable to us. So when we talk about the grace of God, the pure grace of God, it's important that we get it right. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. What is the pure grace of God and how can we, what are some of the additives and contaminants that it can load up with? Because God's pure grace comes free of additives and contaminants. His grace comes free of additives and contaminants. In the first message I read from Philip Yancey's wonderful book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And in that book, he, talked, he says that grace is the last best word. And the passage we're going to look at today in John 8, it is to me the best grace story ever. Not just because it's a compelling story, but it's, it, it poses the same dilemma between contaminants and additives, between, you know, uh, grace abuse and, you know, like stealing the grace of God, or making it easy grace or whatever. It poses the same dilemma that we face. And so I think it's one of the clearest passages on what the word "grace" means, theologically and, and uh, experientially. In our lives, and if you're not familiar with the story, the scene is that uh, there's this very popular rabbinic teacher. His name is Jesus, and he's in the temple and he's teaching. And other rabbinic teachers and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, right in the middle of his teaching, they interrupt him and they bring a woman in and bring bring her right to the front, who's been caught in the actual act of adultery. John 8, 3, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So just like transport yourself there for what that must feel like among everybody in the audience and certainly for her. And then in verse 5, they say that in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now, what do you say? And verse 6 tells us why they asked that question. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So I want you to see that their motive is to discredit Jesus. And they pose this question to him that is a false dichotomy. It's a a useless question, but it it, clearly it illustrates uh, this dilemma of grace. And so it's really helpful to us. I love how John is included this In it. And here, you know, in verse 5, they ask in the, law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So, Jesus is in a pickle. If, if he doesn't say, Stone her, then they have him trapped. He's weak on the law, he's weak on sin, he doesn't follow the scripture, he's a liberal. But if he says stoner, then he he's violating Roman law. He has no uh, authority to order an execution. But more than that, that would make him a fraud. And so it allows these people, the, the teachers of the law, other teachers, and the Pharisees to point their finger at Jesus and see, see, he's not really a friend of sinners. He's just like us and he condemns them. As well, And then Jesus takes this huge risk in how he responds to them. They're peppering him with questions. And in verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, John tells us that he was kneeling down and he was riding in the sand. He straightens up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So basically Jesus just stops and says, I'll tell you what. If you can do it, do it. That's a huge risk. And knowing what I know of being a Christian since 1972, it's remarkable that they didn't follow through and continue in their anger to throw stones at her. But in a miraculous way, they're kind of like set back on their heels, they're stunned, and John says they dropped their rocks and walked away one by one. Now, this story is often referred to as the woman caught in adultery, but I would suggest that we change that title, that now we call it self-righteous dudes that get toasted up by Jesus (laughs) because that's what happened. What Jesus does is he forces them to look inward. "Before, Before you go anywhere with this, look at yourself. And any discussion about God's pure grace has to begin here. Because pure grace enables us to confront our sin honestly. Pure grace enables us to confront our sin honestly. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were unable to to face their sin because they have never encountered or understood the grace of God. So without condoning her sin, let's look at their sin in this situation, because this is a setup from the beginning. Uh, It's not happenstance. I mean, it's ridiculous to think that there's some possibility that this could have just all just happened in perfect timing. What most scholars think has been happening is they've been tracking this. They know what's happening. They've been watching her and sneaking around. And when their opportunity came where Jesus is in the temple teaching and they could see how they could use this situation, they've been saving it. And now they grab her, they bust in on them, and they bring her before Jesus. It's entirely a setup. They've been conniving. Uh, They could care less about this woman and humiliating her. And they dehumanized her by bringing her in front of this very righteous, very religious group. So I would ask in the story, who's the real sinner? Have you ever taken a drink of water and then said, like you notice something in there that's not supposed to be in there, besides like stuff floating in it after one of your kids drank out of it, but like you taste something. You taste something. You know, like when your grandchild who has strep throat drinks your Coke and then and it drools back in, you're like, uh, oh, you can have Grampy's soda now. But more than that, you taste something you didn't see there. It might be a, a, a hint of chlorine or sometimes, like, I'll just get a drink out of the tap, no offense to the water company, but it makes me think they were working on the system because it tastes like acetone, or, or maybe Cindy's trying to poison me, I don't know, but it has not worked. You see, self-righteousness is a contaminant, not a component of grace. Grace. Self-righteousness is a contaminant, not a component of grace. And and Paul writes that it's a common contaminant. That's why he he has to address this in Romans 14.10. He says, you, then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Whose judgment seat? God's. You see, judging is above my pay grade and yours too. But like how water can be contaminated, Christianity is vulnerable to the contamination of self-righteousness. I'm going to tell you something. Self-righteousness tastes horrible the first time you taste it. But you can acquire a taste for it after a while. Self-righteousness is really a cover-up for self-loathing. We self-loathe because we don't understand God's grace. But when we receive God's grace, the pure and amazing grace of God, the the fear of not being accepted is eliminated. And it it eliminates the need for us to pose or to become self-righteousness. And to me, this is one of the reasons why Christianity makes the most sense of all world religions because religion can lead you to a place where you're you're not even like the values that your religion uh, espouses it can it can make your life worse it can make you feel horrible about yourself which is not the point in Christianity we're free to acknowledge that we're broken. And our acceptance with God has nothing to do with our performance. And when we, when we can get there, when we can realize that God accepts us as we are, we no longer need to be defensive because we're all sinners. Just think about how much that would help you if, if you really thought this through how much would that help you in your relationship? So think about the argument you had with your spouse this week or on your way to church or in the parking lot at church. And, and part of the dynamic of that argument was you could not, like, own your part. You cannot accept or acknowledge that you're involved in this conflict. What if, what if you could freely admit that? What about... What about like at work when you know you're in a conflict with your with a coworker, or and there's like this dynamic where you can't even talk with one another, and and so and but part of that conflict is that nobody in the conflict can admit that they're wrong. The freedom that the grace of God gives us is that I have I have nothing to defend. I am a sinner, and yet God accepts me just as I am. Think of how much money you could have saved on counseling and therapy. I'm a big believer in counseling and therapy, by the way, but a lot of therapy and counseling is really like you're spending hundreds of dollars so that that counselor can get you to own that you have a problem. And all you ever really needed to do was like accept fully the grace of God. It frees us. If you hold on to the grace of God with both hands, um, you'll be able to face your true self, and you won't have a free hand for rocks either. But there's something connected to that fear of acceptance that's part of this contaminating process when it comes to the grace of God. The pure pure grace allows us to filter out condemnation. That's what comes with it. When we can't acknowledge or confront our own sin, that's usually because we fear condemnation. See, condemnation and sin have a symbiotic relationship. Where one is, the other is usually not far behind. Like water, uh, once water is contaminated by one thing, it usually brings a host of other things that thrive off of that contaminant. In 2008 in uh, Colorado... They had a big outbreak of salmonella, and they traced. There were seventy-eight hospitalizations uh, that year from salmonella poisoning, and uh, they they traced it back. It was the tap water. Um, Now you know what what salmonella lives off of, right? Salmonella lives in the intestines of human beings and animals. Get in the picture. You see, what I'm saying is there are things in our water, people. I love what Benjamin Franklin said. He said, in wine there's wisdom, in beer there's freedom, in water there's bacteria. (laughs) And condemnation is a common contaminant of grace that thrives off of sin. See, when you become a Christian, your sins are gone, they're forgiven, but I want to also point out that you're not just free from your sin and its penalty. You are free from the condemnation that almost always accompanies sin. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 8.1, there therefore, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, we're forgiven, but there are no, there's no condemnation that is always associated with this. You know, in in the interaction Jesus has with uh, the adulterous woman in John 8.10 he's, he's been on his knees writing and he straightens up and he says woman where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one sir she said then neither do I condemn you Jesus declared go now and leave your life of sin Jesus says to her I don't condemn you now that's, that's especially dramatic given the nature of her sin see this, this text, they're calling out for, for the woman to be stoned, which if, you know, by the strictest of Old Testament law, an adulterous uh, wife could be executed. Well, That's a sermon for another day. But um, because they're specifically calling for execution by stoning, uh, this is saying that she wasn't married, that she was a fiancé. And so... What's been happening here, she's betrothed to be married, yet she's carrying on with another man. So that's a pretty serious sin, even in our day, right? And so this interaction that Jesus has with her in regard to condemnation, uh, it tells us a lot. It helps us understand a lot about grace. So first of all, notice the order of the conversation Jesus has. Verse 11, he says, I don't condemn you. Go now, go now, and leave your life of sin. So first is I don't condemn you. And second is go and leave your life of sin. There's a temptation with us to, to one, ignore either part, but like also to reorder that conversation. And to say, are you willing to leave your life of sin? Then, then I don't condemn you. That's not what happened here. And I think that tells us something about the grace of God. You see, getting grace right requires that we get the gospel right. Spurgeon wrote this, If you take away the grace of God from the gospel, you have extracted it from from its very lifeblood. And there's nothing left worth preaching, worth believing, or worth contending for. Grace is the soul of the gospel. Without it, the gospel is dead. And then Jesus in Mark 2.17 said, It's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is inviting sinners to him to give them grace, not condemnation. This past week I was talking with somebody, uh, and they're, they're pretty new to Sunridge, and what they said about you guys is that what I love about Sunridge is that it is a It's okay to not be okay. And I love that. I hope that that's true of us. You see, when we're free from condemnation, we're free from the the, the temptation to kind of, you know, categorize sins into worse versus better. See, self-righteousness reorders categorize sin to say, your sins are worse than mine, therefore, you know, I'm better than you. But those of us who are self-condemning, we categorize sins in a way that says, my sins are worse than yours, and so I condemn myself. I loathe myself. Look at what, what the woman, what you don't hear this woman say when Jesus says, I don't condemn you. She doesn't ask, what about all those guys that just left? Are you, you going to like let them have it? What, what about the guy that I was with? What, why is he not here? Good point. She doesn't even argue with Jesus about her own forgiveness. It appears that she just accepts it. And in that moment, if you can transport yourself to her, can you imagine how hard it was for her, one, given all the choices that she had made, to accept the grace of God in that moment for herself. And then can you imagine how difficult it must have been in her her humiliation and everything she'd been through to not cast the stone back? There's no record of that. Jesus says, where are they? And then he says, I don't condemn you. And I, I think that that juxtaposition between they and I is important to know. Because I think Jesus is saying, they condemn you, but I don't condemn you. And if, if you've made choices you know, that, have, that make you feel like you're far from God, Can I just remind you that with all the voices around you, even though they're condemning you, if you just look Jesus in the eye, he will say, I don't condemn you. Condemnation is a potent toxin to grace. It is always accompanied, it thrives off of sin. So I would just propose that for one day we try this. We flip grace and condemnation. And so this week, when you face condemnation, when you self-condemn, rather than running with that, I want you to put grace in front of that. Just try it. And see what happens. Lastly, Uh, Pure grace frees us from the need to make excuses for sin. We, We can confront our sins in the freedom that grace gives us because God accepts us. Not because of who we are, but because of Christ's redemptive work. And we no longer sit under the burden of condemnation of sin, whether it comes from others or ourselves. And it's that grace that frees us from making excuses for our sin. In verse 11, notice again, Jesus says, I don't condemn you, and then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. We, we have to, as I mentioned, resist the temptation to flip those statements, but we also need to resist the temptation of just stopping in the first one, right? I don't condemn you. The rest of what Jesus said is go now and leave your life of sin. Look at those final words because you have to look at those to to fully grasp the pure and amazing grace of God. Go now and leave your life of sin. Is that unclear to anybody? Super clear. Jesus says turn from this. You are no longer that behavior. I have rescued you from those destructive choices, the penalty of your sin, the condemnation of your sin. Now live like who you are. Paul writes in Philippians 1.27 that we're to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. That doesn't doesn't take away from the gospel that that, uh, God's grace is greater than anybody's sin. But when we receive that grace, when we're filled by it, um, there, it changes us. It's easy to misinterpret the idea of gra- the, grace, the grace of God. This is where it's, it's easy for us to put things into grace that make it taste better to us. When I was a kid growing up, a lot of old school stories today, I recognize that, but uh, we used to drink Kool-Aid. Anybody remember Kool-Aid? Purple or red? How many say purple? How many like red? Everyone likes red. Parents hated red. Well, purple too, because it stained the carpet really bad. But if you have no idea what I'm talking about, Kool-Aid, you didn't miss anything, but it was like this really brilliant colored powder. I don't know what was in it, and you would mix that in with a half gallon of water and then it would be like cup after cup of sugar. And you had to keep stirring it, stirring it, stirring it. And you know, you're really lucky if mom's in a hurry and didn't stir it up much and your glass had that like half inch of granulated sugar still at the bottom. You're like, <laughs> We put Kool-Aid in our water to make it taste better. And there's a temptation with the grace of God to load it up With syrupy sweet things that make us, that makes the pure grace of God taste better, but it's not the pure grace of God. And that additive, most additives that make grace more palatable basically say this it doesn't matter how you live. Or I just can't live up to that. And so, like, why try? I have the grace of God. That's just making grace taste better. You see, in this situation, we can see this woman's behavior, how destructive it was to her. And uh, in her right mind, she would have never made those choices if she could see all the consequences of that. And maybe you've lived that in some different way, but it's like, you know, we know that that's not a way to live. And that's why, because it's not the way that God has designed us to live. So when Jesus says, go now and sin no more, he's given her the best advice that she could ever have. And so, too, those of us who are Christians and we've received the grace of God, why would we want to stay the way we are? Because God's grace meets us as we are, but it won't leave us as we were. It meets us as we are, but it won't leave us as we were. Grace doesn't say our lives don't matter. Romans 6, 1, Paul's addressing this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall Shall we go on sinning so that grace can increase? By no means. One translation says, God forbid. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, if that sounds contradictory to you, that God accepts us as we are, but we cannot continue to live that way, um, it's not contradictory. It makes perfect sense, given that God's love for people accepts us the way we are, but, he, but we cannot stay that way for our own good. Picture yourself, on your wedding day, you made a vow, right? And you said you're going to love this person, you know, for better, for worse, yada, yada, yada. What if you had, what if you had said that vow, and then, like, as soon as you got done, said, well, honey, I'm just really glad that we said these vows to one another, and, uh, and, and that you're committed to me for life, because, because that frees me up to just do whatever I want to do now. And, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a few girlfriends, but, but, but don't worry. I'm going to visit you once a week, uh, maybe, maybe twice a month. I don't know. It depends on how good I am. And I might even give 10% to you, honey, for you to live off of. But, you know, um, you see, it's like you would never, first of all, you would never live. Right? Amen. Thank you. Was that Cindy? That's not, it's, so like, of course you, you said this vow, you meant it with all your heart, but like, if you really meant it, like, does it mean you're going to be perfect? No, but like, it doesn't give you freedom to just be whoever you want to be, right? You know, this woman in the story, I, I often wondered, did she change? I, I have no idea. How, if she did change, how much did she change? I have no idea. And that's to me, that's one of the beauties of the story. Is be, because it's like John's, you know, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you know, he records the story right to there. And it's like, if there had been more to the story, wouldn't we be tempted to like, see, that's the level of obedience that must be there to demonstrate true belief. Isn't, is that the argument we have today in the church? Here's here's the truth. When we receive the grace of God in its purest form, without additives, and without contaminants, we, we no longer have to fight or fear acknowledging that we're broken. And we don't have to fear the condemnation comes with that when you drink of that pure and amazing grace of god you change we change at different rates we we become uncomfortable with the way we were there's so many factors that contribute to what your life looks like after you receive that grace but you will change because you are freer than you have ever been in your life because you have the grace of God in you. Let's pray.